Hello, you're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 84th episode. Today's episode is unlike anything in the two and a half year history of Kobe Time. He Ring Ming and Go Wei Chun are the duo behind what I believe to be the most widely followed financial literacy social net media platforms in Singapore. Under the banner of the woke salary man, let me spell it out for you, the T-H-E-W-O-K-E, salary man, all one word, their content is followed in impressive numbers. On Instagram, they have over 357,000 followers. On Telegram, there are nearly 37,000 subscribers. On Facebook, the platform is listed under finance blog with the description, important knowledge for people who earn less than $4,500 a month. On Telegram, the description is a little more evocative, save money and other cool shit, and then retire before <laughs> 65, hopefully. I think this is going to be fun. Riving and Wei Chun, welcome to Kobe Time. Hey, thank, thank you, you. Taimur. That was a very lofty introduction, and I hope that... Uh, we live the expectations. We can live up to the hype. Yeah. We, we were exchanging messages last night, and I said, I have very high expectations, and I'm sure you'll surpass it. And I got a little sweaty emoji in back. <laughs> uh, hey guys, uh, let's begin with the beginning. All superhero stories have an origin story, so let's start with yours. How did it all start, and who does what in your in this dynamic duo of yours? You want, you want to do this? No, you say how we start first. All right, right. more your thing. Okay, so I think uh, I used to work in advertising. I think back in two thousand and eighteen, and I think one thing that people always ask me was was, was the money stuff because I I was quite. Uh, money minded yeah I was quite money minded I was saying you guys should save money you guys should invest and when I show people like the resources that I use to learn more about finances they always say like oh you know this is too boring I can't read it so I thought like mm, how do we reach out to these very short attention span people uh, you know I eat millennials huh? is that what you mean ah, no, no 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 just short short attention span right, people right. like the people who don't, don't want to read through like Maybe 800 words of text, yeah. which is quite a low bar, but still, yeah. these people exist. And they so, could be young or they could be old. It doesn't have to be only millennials. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I thought we could find a way to bring like emotion and we find a way to uh, add, add visuals to it. It could actually make for quite a, a potent co- uh, combination. So, I think sometime in 2019, I wrote an article about how to save uh, 100 grand before you turn 30. And then... Uh, we, I shared it as an article. Like, uh, it was a very, quite a long article, but it was written in non-jargony, non-jargony kind of prose. And then I, I told Wei Shun, like, you know what? This actually did well, even with even without those fancy images we talked about. If you drew something, I think it could do even better. And then he drew it, and then the the, the first comic that we, we created got around like 6,000 shares on, 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 the, on the first... On Facebook, uh, yeah, which on is Facebook. quite... It's really good Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, yeah, so that was quite an impressive like uh, launch, I would yeah, say. Yeah. And then I think from there we realized that uh, the platform had a lot of potential, and we just have been going at it ever since. Yeah, because like before that even happened, like I mean, Remy and our friends were friends first, and then we were friends from Poly. You know, we go way back, and we've always socially met up. Then we always been talking about like because I mean we were also a little bit tired of the red race. We always, the topic, whenever we go out, will just invariably become, hey, how do we make money? How do we start a business? How do we escape the thing? So we've always been trying, trying things here and there also, sometimes together, sometimes on our own. So when this thing happened and it got 6,000 shares, we were like, hey, this is it. Like We, we can maybe make something out of this. So from then on, we sort of got, got the idea that we might be able to 
make a company out of this? So the, the initial plan was that we used Volkswagen as like a, a portfolio piece. We'll show people that, hey, you know what? We know how to simplify complex things and make people care about a possibly boring subject. So we would use this as evidence to convince clients to let us run their social media accounts and create their social media content. Or do workshops with it. Yeah, or, or do workshops or, yeah. or, or do like corporate training. Yeah. I think along the way, like the we found out that creating content that help, helps educate people makes more sense and uh, it's something that we rather spend most of the time doing. Mm. So we have kind of pivoted to sponsor content. So before 29, Reming, you said that you were in the advertising world. Uh, were you given your drawing expertise? What was your background before that? So actually, my dream since I was 14 years old was to be an animator. I wanted to write and direct and make animated films. Uh, and, and I went to school. I got a bachelor's degree in uh, of arts, uh, majoring in animation. And I also went on to get a a postgraduate master's degree in, in uh, majoring in animation and I wrote about I wrote about expressing Singapore national identity through animation which is a very specific thing you know so I, I kind of realized you know when it was close to graduation time that there are a lot of things I want in life that actually a career in animation would make it a bit more difficult for me to afford because Singapore right compared to our regional neighbors right our cost of living is very high and animation specifically right it's a very labor intensive job so Compared to our foreign neighbors like Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, which are all like big um, hubs of animation of themselves, right? Like, it's, it's quite difficult for you to do something and then still have a certain amount of salary. And I, when I was closing to graduation, I sort of looked at what the price of a house would be or if I ever wanted to own something nice like a car, you know, how much that would be. And I realized that actually it would be a really uphill job. So I, I actually never actually, even though I've got a postgraduate uh, degree in animation, I've never been an animator full-time. I've never worked that as a job. Uh, I felt like I kind of sell out a little bit, but in a roundabout way, you know, doing the work salary, man, has been the closest I've ever gotten to being able to make my own visual story. So in fact, what I did was instead, instead of just like being a stickler, like, like forcing myself to do animation, I realized that one of the bigger... Like it's a Venn diagram thing. If animation is this small thing, there's a bigger thing around there and that's visual storytelling. Yep. So it's really cool that we have the work salary man and I can sort of apply what I love about visual storytelling in a comic way to, you know, what I loved about animation last time. So in a roundabout way, it has sort of happened for me as well. Yeah. No, I, I think the visual storytelling part is what is, I think, the really, really powerful about your platform. Question about the name of the platform, because people coming from, say, a Western persuasion, think of the word woke, you know, a bit of a loaded word these days. I think yours is a more of a sincere interpretation of that word, but walk us through why did you name the platform Woke Salary Man? Sure, I think, okay, number one, I think if we follow, like, the Western interpretation, I think that there's definitely some uh, negative connotation there. But as a Singaporean page and like a page that is in, is in Asia, I think it's important not to kind of take a Eurocentric view of the world, right? Like, I mean, I think people are free to define what the word means to them as long as it doesn't like to put in a very uh, crude way to, to, to shit on what other people think of the word. And I think that's what uh, the word woke in our context means. I think locally, when you say like, oh, I wish I woke up sooner, this means like, uh, I wish I realized sooner. Actually, that has a lot of similarities with what the Western meaning of the word also means because if I'm not wrong, uh, in some ways, the Western definition is to like something along the lines of being aware 
Social awakening. Yeah, social awakening. Yeah. So I guess this is like a financial awakening. So I guess in a way, uh, we wanted to portray the idea of an awakening. And I guess when you are creating creating a brand on social media, the using a word like oh, the awakened salary man sounds kind of... I mean, it's not like the woke salary man very easy to say also. Like, yeah. But the awakened salary man is even more... <laughs> more mouthful. So we thought, I mean, we, we think it's acceptable. And uh, I think at that time, it was quite a... It was quite a... It was not so taboo when we came yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's yeah. right. So the term has, of course, evolved since then. Yeah. Right. But... I mean, we are we we often get the question, you know, oh, will you ever rename? Will you ever rename ourselves? Yeah. I think when the time comes, we might Maybe, yeah. possibly consider. We're always open to to that happening, but at, at the present, I think there's no need yet. Yeah, right. I don't I don't think it's hurting your reach or uh, popularity at all. Uh, but the second part of the name, salary man, which is a Japanese expression. So why did you pick that part as well? Wow. Why did we pick that? I think being a salary man would be the epitome of what people consider being stuck in mm, the race or being yes. a slave. Uh, so I think since our page initially focused a lot on financial independence, I think that was quite a, a natural thing to do. But I think most importantly, if you put the word salary man, it, it kind of has like a, a decent ring to it. So I would say when we came on name, we did not put a lot of thought into it at the moment. Actually, we just wanted to do something that sounded sound catchy and something memorable. Okay, I'll, I'll let go of the discussion on the title, f- except for one more question, which is yeah, sure. on Telegram, it is woke salary people. Yeah. Why did you do that? All right, all right. So, you see, when we are writing things, we are woke salary men because we are, we are male, right? But I think on Telegram, we wanted to be more inclusive, I guess. I mean, we're trying around with being inclusive. So we put work salary people, I guess. Just okay. to, I mean, just to, to test how, how it will be received. But I think uh, work salary people that just doesn't have the same natural ring to the term salary man, which exists organically. So we've considered naming ourselves the work salary people. But if you think about it from, from what is logical and what exists in the real world that that just isn't as organic so you're just trying it out yeah i mean sure yeah sure. uh so look guys in this podcast every time i finish a podcast after a week or so i can go and look at this amazing data dashboard that the provider of the software uh of the platform uh, provides to me so i can see who in the world is listening to my podcast uh how long and all that kind of stuff and i'm sure you get very similar data so you have a very good sense of who your audience happens to be so give us a sense of your demographic yeah, so I think right now it's mostly still mostly Singaporeans, but we do have like growing uh, amount like uh, numbers of readers in places in Southeast Asia, in Australia, uh, the the US, and actually surprisingly the, the the UK as well. So I think we are getting a bit of a, a global audience. I, I think because a lot of things we talk about, uh, young people are actually facing the same problems around the world, which mm. is why which is why they find the content uh, relatable. Mm. I think issues such as uh, inequality, you know, expensive housing, uh, f- uh, foreign talent competing uh, with them for their jobs, uh, unstable markets, you know, the rise of cryptocurrency. Mm. I think these are all quite the quite hot topics, mm. at right. least if you live in any major metropolitan uh, area in the world. I think our audience also skews a bit younger, but, but uh, not so young where we can still like very effectively reach uh, young people who have not started work yet. So I think around 
like 18 to 35-ish. That's usually the range that we, we hit at. Uh, we've also tried to sort of make content for specific niche, for example, uh, women and specifically, or like uh, we also try to sometimes when we have something to say about something that, because money is not just money, like money overlaps with a lot of things like societal issues or relationship issues and things like that. So we've also made pieces talking about like the relationship between younger and older people. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we, we might write it in a way that is particular, uh, on purpose to incense and kind of hope and then make people a bit like, you see the headline, you're a bit like angry, but when you read it, then there's more like objectivity to it later on, you know. So we, we do reach out now and again to sort of reach beyond our demographic here. Yeah. yeah. And and is it a responsive audience? Do you get a lot of feedback from your listeners and viewers? Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword because like the feedback is <laughs> both very can be very kind and they're because sometimes people do disagree like vehemently with yeah. us. So the feedback can be pretty uh, nasty. Yeah. nasty as well I think part of running a page like this sometimes is to understand that um, it's, it's different because like last time if you imagine like if you went back to say like the golden age of cinema in the 1940s like there's no way in like somebody can I don't know like private message Clark Gable if they didn't like movies you know they had to write a letter it would be sent to his team and then they'll read it and it's angry and they just toss it away but now it's so direct that everybody can reach you and actually like we read almost all the comments that, that people put, but we just don't have the time to reply to all of them. But, you know, when we first started it and we first started getting traction and we started getting our first hit of, like, negative comments, um, which is actually a, a, a symptom of being successful because when you first hit with the audience, right, it's usually people who find you because they like your stuff. But when they start sharing your stuff more and more, you will start to reach people that naturally don't like your content or they're not kind of in the same frequency that you're at. And that is a good thing because sometimes you can convert some of them or sort of change their minds. But a lot of times they also get angry and, and that is actually just part and parcel of what we do. So we have to oftentimes remind one another when we see comments that we don't like to remember the long goal that this is a part of the process that, um, you know, we're not influencers, we're not playing that game, but we still have that same sort of thing that comes at us. So as a mental health kind of thing, we have to know how to zoom out and understand that you know, these are oftentimes also people who might have bad days and, and whatever. So sure. perspective is so yeah. important. I think sometimes people are just projecting their insecurities. So all the time, yeah, yeah I do it too, right? You know, so yeah, so I think human. the comments aren't, aren't always rational. But I think of course it, it definitely hurts you a bit yeah. sometimes. Sometimes it does cut quite deeply. Yeah. But I think in the long term we have to recognize that this is a privilege of reaching, reaching a large audience. For example, if I had an audience of two people, I mean the likelihood of them disagreeing me or disliking me is really low. But let's say I reach like 3 million people. Yeah. Even 1% of that audience will be 30,000 30, people who are angry at, angry at you, disliking you. And I, I, and I think it's just, it's just part, of, part of the job, I guess. Right. And, and I think that's the explosive aspect of social media that, that 1% can be so loud that it will take away the validation you get from the 99% unless you're a very strong personality, right? Mm. Uh, and, and we see that both in terms of, you know, sort of business content as well as personal content. Whenever people get criticized, they put a very large negative weight to that as opposed to, you know, words of appreciation or praise. Uh, but I'm going to talk a little bit about your content, but those who are not listening to this podcast but watching it on YouTube, they'll be seeing you with a background of an office some activity behind, a few boxes. Where are you? 
We are at a place called Farrell Park in Singapore. Uh, it's a relatively new office. It's a nice place, you know, it's new. We are the first tenants here. Uh, we stepped it up during the, the COVID pandemic. So I think it, we got it for a good price and that's a very important thing to us, you yep. know. We have to lift the values that we preach, you know, about like spending uh, less than you earn, you know. So uh, it's quite bad that we, I have a lot of ideas for being an artistic person. I want to do it up nicely, but I also look at the cost and uh, maybe we, we save that for later, like, you know. So it's a, I would describe it as a humble and realistic place, you know, like we, it's not that we don't have the finances to make it up very nicely, but yeah. we, we, we need to be very careful with how we spend because like, um, and I think this has been our value since day one that we are, um, for example, in contrast with a lot of these like VC companies, these startups that uh, get a lot of seed capital in the initial stages and then they can afford very nice things. We've always been very brick and mortar and very traditional when it comes to the way that we spend our money. So maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. I, I felt kind of bad about it, especially in the beginning because we have a lot of peers, you know, like our friends who run businesses and sure. the offices are very swanky and nice. Right? And I also like, hey, why can't we also have nice things? But um, because we we own the company, there's no equity, there's no shareholder apart from us. You know, we we prefer to live our values like that. So that's, I guess, one of the drawbacks about working with us. The, the office is not going to be super swanky. I think also know. we are entering like a period of like economic uncertainty. And like the lower your, your OPEX. Mm, your burn rate, yeah, right? The, the longer yeah. you can survive. So I think Absolutely. Uh, this is, I mean, whether you're a person or a company, yeah. reducing your expenditure is just one way to bring certainty in an uncertain world, which I feel that is quite underrated right now. Yeah, so our office is not, say, very nice. And then we jury-rig a lot of things, like the fridge, for example, is from my mother-in-law, you know, that's <laughs> a spare one. So it, I, I feel like there's a charm to it, and I like that. I, I sort of like that about us also, you know, yeah. I noticed a couple of staff members uh, in the background. That means it's not just the two of you. Work Salary Man is now a bigger team than just the two of you. Yeah, there's five of us in total. So we have three other colleagues, two of who draw for us, and then one, uh, Viv, uh, she is our business development development person. Yeah. Right. And actually our boss also, because she, yeah. just, she just tells us what to do when we do she, it. She actually used to be from DBS. So yeah. I see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, let's talk about content. Um, you have already touched on this issue, which is that you cover actually issues be that go beyond financial literacy. But first, let's just focus on the matters of personal finance, from stock picking to long-term saving. So describe for me your content generation process, please. Wow. Okay. I think is I would say it's very <laughs> haphazard. Actually, uh, uh, most of the time, content angles happen because Rachel and I have a conversation and both of us either like disagree or we feel very strongly about something. And that's when we decide to turn it into a piece of content. Because I used to be a copywriter and I worked in an agency and how we used to come up with content there was to look at the content calendar and then we see like, oh, what dates are coming up? So for example, this month is September, right? So of course there will be a teacher's day's post. Then uh, the next one got Halloween. So let's prep a Halloween post. Yeah, you know? and, and, and what I just found out long term, this is just a shitty way to create. Like, you're finding excuses to Yeah, good content. content yeah. So, yeah. so what we found was a lot more sustainable was to find things you care about and then be independent of the content calendar and just create your own content on your on your own terms yeah. rather than following what everyone else does. Yeah. So that's our con content uh, creation process. Uh, I think we also try to talk about not just money investing, but also like the stuff that money investing overlaps, uh, yeah, or, overlaps or eventually affects. Because it's not just about gaining money is also about how you spend it, what you do with your money, because all these all these things have great impact upon uh, an individual's life. 
And and do you guys like you know take one each other's content and edit it and re-edit it? I mean, it's like many many iterations, or you're not a sweet spot where you can do these things pretty easily. Wow. I think we have a set sort of standard practice, but what we often deliberate on whenever we do ping pong back and forth, right, would be the front part, which is the writing. Because all of our comics, articles, whatever, right, they all start on Google Docs. Hmm. So he will send me something, or I might write a draft and I'll send him. Then he will give me feedback, I give him feedback, then we just go back and forth until it's done. Then during the production process, like, then I sort of take over where I talk about the, I'll deal more with the storytelling aspect, uh, the visual metaphors, are they clear enough? Are they too heavy-handed? And then uh, we we'll also get his feedback on that. So it, Google Docs has made it very easy for us to work extremely quickly. Like, it's very interesting because like, we started just before COVID or just when COVID was starting and that was when everybody was doing like uh, office work, you know? So we started off in a very remote way where we were communicating many on Facebook messaging and Google Docs. So we have always been like that and that has made it very fast for us to do changes. Like even when we go on leave, you know, like we will use Google Docs to send each other. Then when we have like a few minutes before bedtime, even when I'm on leave, I might look at the story, you know, just to, to bet it and stuff. So it's very organic, haphazard, mm-hmm. but that also allows us to be agile, right? Be very agile, yeah. That's a good corporate term, agile, yes. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, the in between, like, yes, uh, yes, yes. it's just fun, it's fun. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, share with us uh, some of your favorite posts. And when I talk about favorite posts, there are two ways, right? That one is like how satisfied you are in terms of conveying something exactly the way you wanted to. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the audience would like it. Sometimes you do something that you may not think is your best, but you would get an incredibly good audience response. So from both dimension, uh, tell us about some of the things that are notable. Uh, maybe I start first. Mm. So my favorite thing that we did was uh, it was a story called Rich People Problems, which actually in hindsight is quite a bad title. Uh. Basically, it's just this very narrative and dramatic story about a guy who's at a bar and basically he's telling a story to the bartender. You know how people get drunk then they vent to the bartender and they reveal their deepest, darkest insecurities, right? So this person was just venting to the bartender about how, um, you know, I'm a very rich person. I've made a lot of money, but, you know, in doing so, I'm estranged from my family. But, you know, tomorrow I'm going to quit my business. I'm going to go and spend time with my kids. I'm going to turn it all around. But it turns out that the bar is actually a, a, a limbo space, meaning this person is dead. And it's too late to turn things around. So saying like, basically it's a very simple parable about how, you know, you, you, you want to make money, you want to, be able to provide for your family, but you also want to actually be there for your family to have the time to spend that money on your family, you know? So it's a very simple thing. But when I was writing it, it was very early in our our foundation, you know? Like, so we up till then, we've done very, I would say like almost TED Talk presentation-y kind of things where like, here's five reasons you should do this, how I managed to save 100K by 30. So this was a big leap in terms of storytelling for me. And during the creation process, I was so insecure about it. I, 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 because I knew the twist. I, and, and when you're working on something and you're drawing and iterating, you're looking at the thing again and again and again. So I was thinking the twist is not going to work. It's going to be too predictable. Who's not going to see that this guy is dead? And I was so insecure about it. I remember uploading the images, the final images. And I, was, I wanted to just cancel it and not upload it because I thought it was just crap. Right? It's just not a good piece of content. But when it eventually went up, it did actually very well. People said that they teared up reading the thing, which is just a great compliment to me. You know, I, I just... I just think when you make somebody cry with your content, like it hits on a new level, right? Because you're making that person essentially lose their emotional composure. That's you know, which I think is a great compliment. 
So I remember during that that part, like I learned a great lesson about confidence and not being able to like not sabotaging myself, but also during that process, a mantra that rhyming. I mean, necessarily so kept nagging at me, which was that done is better than perfect. It's never going to be perfect. And the more and closer and closer you get towards perfection, right? It just becomes like you spend more and more amount of time to polish off increasingly small amounts of perfection. It's a diminishing return. Diminishing returns, yeah. So that was a great lesson and something that I still struggle with being a, an artist. And, and my ego is that my work is who I am and my quality as an artist. But we are also making content for people. Social media has to be fast. So a lot of great lessons and also I felt great about the impact of that post. So that was my favorite story. Mm. I think my favorite post was something we did, actually a piece of sponsored content we did for Workforce Singapore. So it was a story about how my dad dealt with the 997 uh, Asian financial crisis. And it detailed, you know, like moments of my childhood from the time like when my dad came home one day mysteriously on, on a weekday and just took me out for lunch and as a kid, I was thinking, man, this is strange. Like, why are you home? Yeah, why are you home? Should you be like working, working and stuff? But later on, as a kid, I only found out that you know he he had been retrenched. And the story was actually uh, a retrospective approach to see like how my dad dealt with retrenchment. Uh, I think we we shared it, and eventually it was it, it got received very well. Even like uh, the prime minister shared it. A uh, prime minister, Lee Hsien Long, shared it. Actually, on Father's Day. Yeah, on Father's Day. Talking about Lee Kuan Yew, yeah, which was like, what? Yeah, and, <laughs> and I showed that to my dad, who is a great fan of like Lee Kuan Yew. And I, he didn't tear about like, I would like to think that he would have. I think he tear later. He yeah, go yeah. toilet and then, oh no. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. yeah, but I would like, but I think he was really happy that his story actually. It resonated yeah. with the prime minister of the country so much. Exactly. Then it reminded him of yes. his father, who was a founding father of the nation. That's yeah. That's insane. Yeah. You, you can definitely take a bow for that one, Remy. No question about that. Um, <laughs> it's so interesting that you shared that particular incident. Uh, I was with a colleague last week and he told me almost a very similar story. He did not express it the way you did, but he, he was growing up in uh, KL uh, in late 90s and his dad had a business which went bankrupt uh, around the 97, 98 crisis. And he was telling me how in these you know, the 25 years since the crisis, as he has sort of become an adult and a professional, how that experience has scarred him and influenced his attitude toward investment, family, uh, his tolerance for risk. Everything was fundamentally shaped by that pivotal incident, which I'm sure also had a huge impact on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, like, from a storytelling point of view, I mean, like, some of the greatest uh, victories are right are risen up from the greatest defeats. You know, like these crucibles from where you know these great stories come from. That's something that we look for a lot. Also, so yeah, it's a it's very relatable. Yeah, I, I think also by drawing on history, we can teach people uh, perspectives, right? Because crises often repeat themselves. You know, yeah, history repeats yeah, history itself. Itself. Yeah. So there was like the tulip crisis in the yeah, past, yeah. great financial crisis, dot com, uh, dot com bubble. So I think. Especially in, in, in the past two years during the pandemics when markets were, were hot, I think we, we tried to bring in some of this historical perspective to, to let people know that, hey, you know what, there are boom and bust cycles. What you're experiencing now is probably part of a boom cycle. It might not last forever. So we yeah. also try to bring that to help people see that, uh, you know, as, as the saying goes, like past performance does not indicate uh, future results. And that applies to their uh, investment stock portfolios today as well. Mm-hmm. It is amazing how, regardless of 
where in history we stand, we always think that this time is different, that the past is not going to, you know, come back to haunt us. And, and every single time it does. So a few years ago, uh, Kenneth Rogoff at Harvard and Carmen Reinhardt, they wrote a book called This Time It's Different. And that book was entire point was that, you know, debt crisis, even if you go back 500 years, you see the same fragility buildup that leads to crisis and the same kind of pain in terms of joblessness and country insolvency that follow. Uh, but every single time when that crisis is about to happen, some people say, this time is different. This it's time. not going to be like the past. <laughs> uh, and, and then we are, unfortunately, then weighed down by history again and proven wrong. Yeah. I think, to, to I mean, in defense of those people, like, it is different, but slightly different. The factors are different, but yeah. the, the grand, uh, you know, uh, the macro outlook it's, it's the, the same. same thing, it's like right? it's like fear and greed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, exactly. Like, History yeah. doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? Uh, so it just yeah. rhymes the same way. Right, right, right. Yeah. Very good, very good. So you've been doing this for over three years. You get a lot of feedback from your uh, viewers and readers. Um, what are young investors doing right, and what are they not doing right? I think young investors are not doing right because a lot of them are chasing maximum gains, like the fastest gains. I think we saw that particularly last year where, in, in crypto, where people were laughing at like 10 to 20% a year. They say, like, oh, these are rookie numbers, you know. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some protocol that gives me 10,000 10, uh, per year. Yeah. So why should I bother with, with long-term investing? Why should I bother with value investing? 8% is a joke to them. Yeah. yeah. So I think many people are... I mean, were after fast gains. And I think this year was a big reality check to people's egos. I think last year you had people overconfident in uh, their investment strategy. They were saying things like diversification is, is for idiots. You know, it's, it's only for people who do not know what they're doing. But I think yeah. the important thing is to realize that history is very, no, I mean, life is very uncertain. Most of us do not know what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So diversification makes sense. And it's a sort of wisdom to understand that about yourself, that I'm not good enough to go and pick stocks myself. You know, so there's a wisdom in that that I think also people should embrace, especially young people. Mm. But I think like, uh, on, like relating to this, I think like it was a few months ago, I was on the bus and there were like students in uniform that were sitting in front of me and they were talking about crypto and talking about investments and APYs and stuff. And I'm like, what? Like when I was your age, I was talking about the Pokemon and all this stuff, you know, like all these toys and, and mm. cartoons and stuff, you know? Yeah. So I think that also reflects on the good side of things where at least they're talking about it, you know? And, and that conversation is there. I don't know if it's a sign of times and you, you can't ascribe it or like give them the credit for talking about it, but maybe it's the accessibility of having it on your phone now and everybody has a phone. So mm. the barriers to investing, you know, last time you open a brokerage account or actually get in touch with a broker, you know, to even start investing. And now that's different. So maybe that's easier, but at least they're talking about it. And yeah. I think that's good. So the fact that what happened recently, I think is a good thing actually, because mm. it gives everybody a reality check and you're living through a recession or so-called recession yourself. And, and that is a great learning point. So what I tell young people now is that keep your eyes open, see what's happening because you can use this for the next time this happens. You know, it mm. rhymes. It's going to rhyme with this thing. So it's good that they're starting young and maybe it's good that we for for some people yeah. we pop that bubble early, yeah, we pop yeah. that bubble of unrealistic uh, yeah. expectations. Or like Robert would say, like uh, Robert Schiller would say, like uh, irrational exuberance. Right. Yeah. But the the bad news is that some I would say some older millennials 
put a lot of their life savings in the stock market, they were burnt this time. Yeah. So I think that that can't be uh, that can't be ignored. Yeah. But I think overall, yeah, it's it's still a it's still a positive thing, I guess, that people are getting started early and they care a lot more about finances these days. Did the uh, meme stock phenomenon from the US did it make it to the shores of Singapore? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, we know people that have bought into it uh, yeah. at a at a high point and not made out well. You know? mm. yeah. I think because we do these things called like IG Q and A, so we try to answer answer questions from our community. I think during the whole of last year, people were asking like, "Oh, what do you think of GameStop? What do you think yeah. of AMC Dogecoin? <laughs> yeah, what do you think of what do you think of Dogecoin?" Yeah. I think whenever people ask a question like this, it's a sign that they are not really to actually invest. Yeah. Because they're they just looking for... The magic bullet. The magic bullet. A quick stopping. So they, they want someone to just say like, here is the solution to all your problems in life. But actually, life isn't, isn't so complex. So I often try to ignore those questions. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll share with you one anecdote in terms of, you know, this desire for magic bullet, you know, transcends time. So when I was 22, a friend of mine explained to me that all you need is $2,000 to retire in 30 years time. Because if you put it in the stock market, and if you're smart, you'll grow 20% a year. So the power of compounding 2,000, 20% a year for 30 years, you know, more than enough, you know, just all that's all you need. And then the other one is, um, I think this was just a few months before the subprime crisis in uh, Virginia. I was at lunch. And just like, you know, you heard kids in the bus talk about it, behind me were two college students. And all they were talking about was, you know, what's the point of college? If we could only get into the subprime business and make so much money and we can retire by the time we're 25, 28 and buy multiple homes and get passive income. That they kept on saying that passive income for the rest of our lives. Kids talking about getting into the subprime business. Yeah. So basically their hope was that, you know, they would become property agents, but at the same time, they would borrow money from banks to leverage some property and then keep on flipping them um they were a bit late in the game because a couple of months after that the party was over um but but yeah and and now you know that was 2008 now in 2022 somebody thought that they would be able to punt on bitcoin and make a lot of money um so guys that takes me to this question that singapore is a modern society there are cutting edge banks and fintech companies here offering a wide range of financial products whether it is you know, buying stocks or mutual funds or insurance. Uh, but do you see any gaps in products and financial services for young Singaporeans? Well, to be honest, not really at the moment. I think uh, because most Singaporeans will agree that they're already pretty well well served by something as simple as CPF, which is what the, the government does. So when it comes to financial planning for like long term, I don't think there are gaps there. And recently, there were a lot of like digital banks. Uh, these days, there are fractional trading. So I think right now, as a layman, I do not see any gaps in the market at the moment. And uh, so, like, let's say you know we we're having this discussion the first week of September. Interest rates are going up very sharply uh, around the world, including in Singapore. And some banks have raised fixed deposit rates. Um, and you think that even for somebody who makes say less than four thousand five hundred dollars a month, uh, there are plenty of inexpensive avenues where they can set aside money and get incremental returns on those investments. And between large banks as well as sort of the agile fintech companies. There, are, there is a wide spectrum of products that you can suggest to people that they can go and access. For sure. I think uh, 
let me just use the example of cryptocurrencies. So I think last year everyone was saying, you know, crypto was be a way like would be a way to serve the unbanked. It would be a way mm-hmm. to help uh, people. Will actually help people help the poorer uh, segment of the population get financial services. But I think in in Singapore, you know, there's stuff like Singapore savings bonds. You can set up a bank account relatively easily. The the barriers there, the uh, barriers here are not as high as elsewhere in the world, which are less developed. So I would say in, in Singapore, uh, there aren't huge gaps in the market. I mean, there are, there are definitely gaps that people can go to and, and fit, try to fill in the future, but no serious gaps at the moment. Good. I'm mean, good to hear that. Um, I mean, I, I also, you know, sitting in DBS, I'm looking around the financial sector landscape and clearly because of the fintech tailwind that we have had over the last four or five years, I think whether you're a large institution or a small institution, everybody's looking over their shoulders and trying to uh, match whatever new products that's coming in. Uh, this was not the case in the past. I mean, even 10, 12 years ago, if you wanted to trade stocks or if you wanted to trade ETFs, uh, not that easy. Right now, the e-trading platforms have certainly come a long way. Um, Let's uh, talk. Uh, we were discussing earlier that you know your content is not just about financial well-being and financial literacy. I've seen lately, you know, you've done segments of job satisfaction on personal branding, by the way, which I really, really liked. So, what is the thinking behind that? Well, I think many times when people talk about personal finance, they just think about investing and saving, right? So min max everything. Yeah. Right? So they either like the, the coupon cutters or like, oh, I don't get the best best cash back, I don't get the most miles. But that's actually a lot of it is actually spending. When they go about when they go on about investing, a lot of them is like a lot of them are actually focusing on like picking stocks. But that might not always be suitable for the lay person. What the lay person actually needs to do is to actually work on their earning power. And that actually has a lot to do with their job. Because if you don't earn a lot, you cannot invest a lot. And it's a lot easier to earn, let's say, uh, 5% off $100,000. And, and that way you earn $5,000. Then to turn uh, $1,000 into $5,000. So I think focusing on earning power is what most people should do. And we tackle the topics surrounding that. So like how, how to get a pay raise, how to realize like a workplace is toxic, why you should you negotiate, why you should you market yourself. So I think that's why our content doesn't just cover investments, uh, insurance, or saving money. I also think there's a great deal of subjectivity that surrounds the objectivity of finance because it's not just about min-maxing everything and getting the highest uh, amount of percentage return you can. You, you also need to um, sort of balance that with who you are as a person. What kind of risk are you willing to take on? And what are your life goals and what is the enough point in life? Um, I, I've seen examples of, of, of people who make a lot of money, but they sort of get into the trap of just chasing money for money's sake, which is something that when you chase money, right, it improves your quality of life up to a certain extent. And then I think it tapers off uh, if you don't define your, your, your life goals and what you actually want to do. So I think it's very important to also talk about these softer issues with not just how can you earn as much money as possible, but also what do you want to do and how much money do you need to do what you want to do? And this is a lot more to do with also everybody having their own introspection to do their own journaling, so to speak, to understand what they are. Because it can be pretty miserable to not have enough money, but it, it can also be equally miserable if you have money, but you don't know why you are actually after this race. Because it's not easy to earn money, right? So, so you better make sure that 
the slices of life that you're cutting off to do this thing is worth something at the end. Mm. What is that? So how to get money and what to eventually do with the money that you have. Yeah. I think yeah. these are very good. And to be realistic with how much money it takes to do something. Like, for example, the idea of owning a car. It's a very nice idea. And Singapore in particular is very expensive to own a car because of the exorbitant prices of the, the certificate of entitlements. Mm. This is compared to the rest of the world. For example, Malaysia, where I'm from, owning a car is like nothing. So when you consume media from other countries, for example, you might get this very unrealistic expectation about owning a car. And in Singapore, that's going to cost you a lot of money. And unless you're realistic about your financial planning or getting a car, when you can't afford to do so in Singapore, it might actually be a very disastrous thing for your finances. Yeah. Yeah, so something like that, it has to be leveled against what you want to do. Mm. So if I want a car, the trade-off that I need to understand maybe is that I can't have as chill a life as I want. You know, and that's not a bad thing to have a chill life or not. But if you want this, you better be able to afford yeah. it and make yeah. the necessary sacrifices. I think recently we've also been talking about like larger world issues. So for example, like why inflation happens, how come your city is becoming more expensive? Yeah. Why are pro- why are housing uh, prices inflated at the moment? What it takes for a country and especially Singapore to be su- successful or remain successful? Because I think without like a broader understanding of the stuff that's happening around the world, the uh, the world can be seem like quite an unfair place. You can feel like there's no no hope or no chance. I would say by, by helping people see the big picture, they can then like pinpoint like problems that they can actually tackle instead of assuming that, oh, you know what, this is beyond my control. I'm just going to give The up. system is rigged. Yeah. yeah. There's no chance that I can make it out. So that's, I think, I'm thinking like, I always say like we should eventually like sort of redo our motto and our tagline instead of like talking about like making finance more accessible to, to zoom out a bit to talk about like, we want to help people understand how to see the bigger picture, which is why like, I think economists do, which is why I love talking to economists because you guys see the bigger picture and, and sometimes like it's hard to see the bigger picture when you're worried about rent, you're worried about your tomorrow's salary, whether you're going to make enough money to even understand the global events, the seismic events that are happening overseas. And then the result of that is that you might be resentful and that's not very nice, you know? So we always really think like global and macro understanding is so important, but we're thinking constantly about how do we make it more and more accessible? Because it can sound very, um, it can sound a bit like, uh, I don't know, insensitive. When somebody's worried about next week's rent and then you are asking them to think about the big picture and that's why inflation is increasing and that's why you shouldn't be so angry and upset at this or that person. So there's a there's tension, a level yeah. of tension and sensitivity that we need to navigate here, and we are we are trying to do better every day at that. Yeah. But we do sorry, we do believe that overall, at the end of the day, the person who is struggling right, will benefit from knowing from knowing picture. the big picture. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But let's talk about that tension a little bit more. Um, I, I look at Singapore's data right now. You know, we have inflation at seven percent. Uh, we've seen, you know, gasoline prices at the petrol pump go up substantially, come down a bit, but still very high by uh, recent standards. Uh, and we all know about the issue related to housing and rent in Singapore. But at the same time, the export sector is doing very, very well. Uh, the economy is reopening. The hotels are full. Uh, Changi Airport is getting busier by the day. We have Formula One coming up. So I find Singapore at an interesting you know, crossroad. One hand, global headwinds are certainly noticeable. China is a very big sense of worry. On the other hand, Singapore has sort of done well riding through this COVID storm. So when you again talk about the Gen Z or millennial demographics that you are catering to, what is the vibe you're picking up? Is there a substantial amount of anxiety or sort of mid-level anxiety? 
I think most level, I mean, most of the anxiety are centered, centered around like bread and better stuff, you know, like uh, standard of living, housing costs, why they're so expensive. I think the pandemic has really caused a delay of housing supply. So mm. many Gen Zs are extremely concerned about that. Uh, as far as, you know, whether Gen Z or millennials even benefit from the successes that Singapore has, I think that's, that might be slightly more complex because, okay, mm. let's say COVID, we saw this thing called like the K-shaped recovery, right? Some people emerge from the pandemic for the better, others for the worse. I think it's that way, not only, not just in the stock market, but also in, in the general populace as well, all over the world, among, across generations. I also think like qualitatively, like the, what the Gen Zs are thinking a lot about and what the, the struggle for identity also is very prevalent. I think much more so than the previous generation. They, they think a lot about like what is the meaning of work? Is it just pure productivity? And also how does productivity factor into my identity? Which is I think something that might sound fluffy but might have to be addressed. You know, that's where I think like this quiet quitting thing comes from. That's where this life flat movement and all this stuff about you know, nine to five red race and all that. Because in my, my parents' generation, that wasn't even a thing. They just did work and work was something that you just did. So this this thing about identity and people, like the great resignation, I think also has a lot to do with that. This is something that I think this new generation has to sort of figure that out because productivity still has to come. But how does that factor in, you know, do people burn out faster or not? Like that's something that I'm very keen to keep an eye on. Yeah. Right. Um, Said pivot from that issue, but it's, it's very interesting nonetheless. Uh, so I recently read this survey uh, about the eroding level of trust in large financial institutions in America. And the survey, which was sort of done by fintech company, so serves their purpose well, which is the conclusion was that, you know, for Gen Z, it's easier to trust or embrace a fintech as opposed to a large financial institution. Um, does the same hold for Singapore? I think in Singapore, it's a slightly different climate because I think trust in government is a lot higher than, uh, let's say, in the United States. I think a lot of people are less skeptical of the government as a credible, you know, uh, fun financial institution. If if I can describe governments as financial institu institutions or even like large corporations. And the assumption is governments will oversee large financial corporations. So there's definitely a level of trust there that is not so much in the U.S., because, I mean, in the US, they have, like, there's, like, the Enron crisis, you know, back in the day. There was Lehman Brothers. Mm. So, there are a lot more scandals, uh, more a lot more high-profile scandals that might shape the perception of how young people see large financial institutions there. But I'll, I'll say, like, in Singapore, it's not so much the case. Actually, in fact, I think people might approach newer companies with more skepticism. And I say this because every time we do a, a sponsored post with, like, a newish organization, people ask, like, oh, what happens if this shuts down. So they are very aware that uh, all these new players, they might not be established and that and with that comes the risk of uh, them not being being around in the next five to ten years. And I think that's a, that's a fair assumption. Maybe it's a Singaporean thing. Yeah. Maybe it's a, a Kiasi. Not Kiasi. Yeah, maybe it's like scared to die. Scared to die. Yeah. So it, it could be that. Well, I think it's, it's a smart thing to do. I mean, I think, you know, embrace all of these things, you know, trust but verify I think is uh, important as well. Um, staying with that final issue, that uh, level of anxiety or questioning about, you know, what is the meaning of uh, purposeful work? Uh, it seems to me that, you know, the culture that we hear from China, the, the 996, 
I think Singaporeans are ready to move past that uh, and and would demand far greater flexibility and uh, accommodation from their employers than this. So along that line, do you see the next generation of Singaporeans actually becoming more entrepreneurial and perhaps even more keen to hop jobs as opposed to looking for jobs for life and only looking at large companies as the place for refuge? I think it would depend on like who you're asking. I mean, let's be real. Uh, when you're talking about like the full spectrum of benefits, it's very likely that only a very small percentage of people can get it all. They can get a high salary. They can get work from home. They can get uh, flexible benefits. They can get unlimited days leave. Only a very small percentage of people will be able to get all of that because they, are, they have talent, they are mobile, they can work in anywhere they will want. So I think it's important to, to stay that upfront. You know? Not everyone will be able to get all the benefits. But I think as a whole, there's a greater pivot in mindset towards more work-life balance, more sustainable, more, uh, uh, sustainable styles of working, especially those that focus on people's mental health. I think the challenge would be how can Singaporeans justify being paid a Singaporean salary while someone else might possibly do the same job elsewhere for a lot more cheaper, right? Yeah. I think yeah. the key here is for Singaporeans to move up the value chain. I think it's not a pleasant message to say, but it's what we must do. We must learn how to do the jobs that uh, cheaper labor cannot do. I think that's the, the brutal truth. We have to do the jobs that machines can't do. And that is how we will be able to enjoy work-life balance. We will get high salary. That's how we will enjoy like a Singaporean standard of living while also all the benefits that we want. If not, there's going to be a very huge gap between expectation and reality. On the entrepreneurial side of things, I, I, I tend to think, and this might not be true, right? because I'm not from Singapore, I'm from Malaysia. I feel like one of the, the, the defining features of Singaporeanness is prudence. Like the idea that you are safer rather than you will take that, that, that risky jump, you know? So I think that serves very well for business as well, especially in this post like rising interest rate world, you know? So I think that that might be very good, but also like um, I've never sort of felt like Singaporeans were very good risk takers, but that's just from my personal opinion. I, I feel like, but when they do take that leap, like they, they, they are more prudent with it. And I, and I feel like that's a good sign. Uh, I, I do echo what Ming says when on, on that other side of things. I really think like as a foreigner myself, you know, like the reason why I'm even here was that my mom sent me here to study because she recognized that uh, Singapore's economy was better than Malaysia. So the result of that in, in the past 20 years, I think, is that there is now a, a, a big bunch of competition coming regionally, especially with the COVID thing, you know, pushing things remotely that um, Singaporean youths need to be very careful and aware of the competition that surround, surrounds them. And they have to be very uh, understanding of the, the market forces because, for I mean, let's just be honest, like, I'm not the best artist in the world, right? If it's just down to technical skill, I can find somebody just as good or better than me in the regional countries in Southeast Asia that is one-fifth my price. That's just the reality, right? So I have to deal with that. And what I what I do, for example, in the case of the work environment is I start a business and I enact my unique vision on the world, but that vision has to be original and it has to be profitable and it has to work. So that's the challenge because I also think like, on the entrepreneurial side of things, like young people in Singapore also have a good position to start off with because your currency is strong. Your currency is strong relative to the region, so you can sort of 
uh, leverage the, the, the more affordable uh, labor in your regional neighbors. And you're in the same time zone, you can do calls. You don't have to fly there all the time. But I, I think there are great opportunities here. So I would really encourage our young Singaporeans to, to, to try and, and to push us, to recognize your weaknesses and strengths. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to be fair to Singaporeans, I think the culture of entrepreneurship is not something that happens overnight, right? I think right now we're starting to see a lot more startups uh, sprout out in Singapore. Mm. I think there are also a lot of people saying like, oh, you know, is it that Singaporeans are not entrepreneurial? Well, yeah, but these things take time, you know? True. For the past 57 years, we relied a lot on, you know, the like government government corporations, you know, kind of like holding our hand and setting up structures. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that uh, Singaporeans could trust. But I think in the future, moving forward, we will need to be more entrepreneurial. So it's, it's not a matter of uh, do we want is that we will need to be more entrepreneurial right. we to maintain our edge over our neighboring countries. Right. And I think even that holds for large companies that because of the level of competition, because of the challenges from, say, digital banks and fintech, that even large financial companies have to be more entrepreneurial as opposed to just, you know, relying on their uh, large size and and. and assume that that's just going to stay there forever. But it is an interesting irony, isn't it? On one hand, there's a lot of discussion around the world about deglobalization, how the world is fragmenting. But to the point that both of you just made, that in terms of the demand for labor and the transferability of skills through the internet across the world, we are more globalized than ever before. And there's just no way to turn that back. Uh, yep. That genie is out, regardless of, you know, whether U.S. China decide to go their separate ways or not. Um, you know, you guys have been very generous with your time. I want to end on that final note. You've t- talked about this a couple of times during this conversation, but let's talk about it in greater detail. I see that you've done some sponsored content. So t- walk us through the difference between the stuff that you do on your own and then, I guess, you know, getting paid to push certain angles, either for the government or some companies. So our usually content let's just call it organic content. Is the, the stuff that Richard and I talked earlier. We just come up with it uh, based on what we think would be a suitable angle for audience. So we, ju- we do the ag- agenda setting. When it comes to sponsor content, the sponsor does the uh, ag- ag- agenda setting, but we decide whether or not to take on the client itself and we decide how the message should be phrased and like to what extent the client gets to decide their agenda. Because... I mean, let's face it, not all sponsors are sponsors worth taking on. For example, we will never do sponsorship for, let's say, uh, a cigarette company. Mm. Yeah, or let's say a car company that uh, uh, that sells million-dollar cars. Mm. So I think we do have some markers that uh, we steer clear of when it comes to sponsors. Mm. Yeah, I think like right now, still, most of our money is made on sponsors on then. Our approach to that is that we are open to exploring other avenues and we are quite sure that this will not last forever. And I don't know what happens, but we're making hay while the sun shines, but we're also open to creating other avenues of making money. Our approach to sponsor content, I think, <coughs> is something that there is no perfect balance that everybody will agree with. But we have our own code in which we, we decide what to take on and what not to take on. And we are okay with sleeping at night, even if people might disagree. The, the way that we like to do our stories, sponsored or not, is that every story we feel has to stand on its own organically. Meaning, if there was something that happens to this client that we disagree, right? If we take the client sponsor mention out of the story, right? Would the story still work organically? And we try to make sure that every single thing we do, right? The answer to that question is yes. So there are actually instances, for example, that we have made the content, 
something with the client not happy or the client, we have one case where a client actually went bankrupt, right? So we just took the client's sponsor and then we just put it on as it is. That also, I think in a way, makes it very good for us to negotiate because whatever happens, we know that if you want to jump out, it's okay. We just don't get paid for this piece, but we can still use this material. Of course. So it makes us a bit, I always say we're very yaya papaya. I mean, like we're a bit difficult to negotiate with sometimes, but I also think like this comes with the fact that we take a lot of ownership and we put our skin in the game when it comes to publishing because it means a lot to us. And that is also a USP that we add. We don't just take your thing, we summarize your brief and put it out. We believe in it and we will put our own touch on it and we'll take ownership of it. Yeah. Whether or not you will be along for the right ultimately. And that's how we maintain sort of our integrity. Yeah, and of course, I think it's perhaps worth saying that we reject... We most, reject a lot of stuff. Yeah, we actually reject most of our, our clients. Yeah. No, sorry. Most of most of the proposals that... Prospects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. prospects that come in. Because sometimes it's just not a good fit. And I think during... 2021, there were so many opportunities to, to talk about crypto and, and that's right. Man, so much like <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we had to turn, turn those down, but I think in the long term, uh, when it comes to being the change you want to see or when yeah, you want to yeah. talk about social impact, I think that is the more, it, it will be the wiser thing to do. As yeah, I mean, we, to, yeah. we, we've had this existential discussion before early on where we said like, look, there are so many sponsors coming. If we took all of them, despite of whether like we agree with them or not, we would make enough money that we could retire like in maybe two or three years, yeah. you know? But then doing so might ruin our reputation so we won't have the brand for 10 years. And I think we decided to take the latter one, which was to retain our uh, reputation uh, and our authenticity, our morals. Our yeah. morals. And then I, I always... When we're rejecting clients, I go like, well, will I live to regret this like in 50 years time when I'm not a rich person, I'm not <laughs> retired and like, I should have taken all that money. But yeah. I think uh, being able to sleep at night is a very important thing to me. Yeah. Look, there are so many different revenue models on the social media platform. Some people sell the data to advertisers. Uh, I think what you are doing which is being very transparent about who's sponsoring you and your message is not getting diluted. Your branding certainly is not getting diminished. I think what you're doing is absolutely uh, spot on. And the fact that you can sleep at night, what more matters, right? Uh, Ruming and Vishun, you guys have been fantastic. I wish you the best of luck and I look forward to seeing more things from the Woke Salaryman in the coming months and years and decades. So thank you so much for your time and insights. Thank you, Taimur. That was fun. It was great to have you. And thanks to our listeners as well. Kopi Time was produced by Ken Delbridge from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional production assistance. Kopi Time is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations or investment advice. All 84 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.